Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Are you ready for global cryptocurrency money laundering regulations? CypherTrace secures the crypto economy with powerful AML tools for exchanges, crypto businesses, and regulators. My guest today is Matthew Lysing, reporter at Bloomberg News. Welcome, Matt. Hi, Laura. How are you? Good, good. <laughs> so you published an article this week talking about Tether. What question were you asking about Tether and what did you find? Uh, yeah, so... In my opinion, you know, one of the ongoing um, huge questions in crypto is, is whether Tether is legitimate or not, um, whether they have the money in the bank, as they've always claimed. It's one reason why the CFTC sent them subpoenas um, a year ago in December 2017. And I think for a lot of people, uh, me included, they never really kind of gave the proof that you would want um, to see, you know, to, to believe that, that the money was there. Um, so I've been asking that question for a, a long time and, and I, you know, started reporting this story two or two and a half months ago um, to basically just try to zero in on, you know, first of all, I wanted to tell the big story of Tether and how it started and, and the arc from like 2014 through to today uh, that story didn't kind of, didn't really pan out. Um, but in my reporting, I, I w was able to get, um, bank statements and some other documents, um, about the money flows for Tether. And so the, the story morphed into a more targeted look at, um, the bank activity, uh, specifically at Noble Bank down in, in Puerto Rico. Um, so, you know, that's what we were looking into. And what did you uncover? Well, based on um, four months of bank statements, uh, we, we got a very good look at the dollars uh, in, in the bank, and uh, they, they matched up with the publicly uh, published, you know, Tether coins outstanding, um, according to coinmarketcap.com. And so, you know, it, as we say in the story, uh this is evidence, you know, it's more evidence that, that this is legitimate. It's not proof. It's, we don't have like, this is not an audit. Um, we don't know where the money came from or went. But um, another thing we say in the story is that this is, you know, the most amount of information that's been made public about Tether and its banking relationships. So we felt confident saying that it appears as though the money is there. So no, and, and are all the documents from Noble Bank? Uh, yeah, the bank, the bank statements are all from Noble Bank. And I was, uh, I was given an unredacted report that Friedman LLP did for, for Tether. Uh, they, they released that to the public, but some of the, the names of the banks or all the names of the banks were blacked out and some other information was blacked out. Um, so 
So one question that I have is Noble Bank was founded by at least one person who also founded Tether and Bitfinex, Brock Pierce. So how much do you trust the documents from Noble Bank? I, I, I trust them because they uh, were verified for us by somebody in the government uh, as being the legitimate and matching what um, they get uh, that, that they have received. So um, that was part of the reporting and part of what made us feel confident in the, in the story. Uh, the Puerto Rican government? Uh, it's a government official. And, and just that's what we say in the story. And um, I, you are right that uh, Brock did have a role in creating uh, Noble with John Betts back in the day after they had worked together on Sunlot Holdings. Uh, they had tried to rescue Mount Gox, but, but didn't get their plan approved. Um, I, in my reporting, uh, and, and a lot of this unfortunately didn't make it into the story because as I said, that you know we, I had plans for a much longer piece. Um, but Brock, is for what I was told by several people is he hasn't been involved with Noble since um, 2016. And, you know, I, I think yeah, I could just leave it at that. So the documents aren't all incredibly recent, but they do cover a time period when the markets were especially frothy and the Bitcoin price was high. So what level of comfort or confidence do these documents or what level of comfort or confidence do you think these documents should give the crypto markets right now, despite their age? I think um, that's a good question. I, I, you know, I would love to have the most recent documents. Um, just that wasn't, I wasn't able to get that uh, in the reporting for this story. Um, and just for listeners, why don't you say which, which time periods you were able to get documents for? Yeah. So the statements I got were for September and October of 2017 for January and July of 2018. So, yeah. Um, and so I think September, October is when the price started taking off. January was when it had recently reached that peak. So, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, uh, the documents show that the, the Noble account was opened in September. Um, there was a huge transfer of, um, funds on September 15th and, um, by the end of the the month, um, I, I, the numbers were four hundred fifty two million or something like that. When you have to add in that um, they had about sixty million dollars at the Bank of Montreal, um, that was a stopgap measure that they used uh, when they lost their banks in Taiwan uh, in about March of twenty seventeen. When Wells Fargo said that they would no longer be a correspondent bank for these three or four banks in Taiwan who had been holding, they had been holding the tether money uh, and the Bitfinex money as well. Uh, they were able to open an account under Stu Hogner's name, the general counsel um, at the bank of Montreal uh, transferred tens of millions of dollars on, on the 15th of September. It was somewhere around 60 million. And, and wait, I'm sorry. He's a general counsel for who, for the bank of Montreal? No, I'm sorry for tether no. and for Bit oh, Bitfinex. Okay, so it, it, it was a, there's an, a, an attorney escrow uh, process you can go through. And, and if you were a customer of Tether and you were concerned that, that there were no banks um, after March of 2017, you could have gone to them and say, hey, I want my money back. And they would have said, okay, we, we have this settlement process in place. As long as you sign these settlement papers, um, Stu Hogner will, you know, you, we will settle your account through that those funds that were in the Bank of Montreal. Um I was told that, you know, out of the 
there's only maybe 20 or 30 million um, of, of refunds out of that total. So, and wait, I'm sorry, when you say refunds, what does that mean? It means people cashing in their tether for dollars again? Yeah, exactly. They could have, they could have gotten the money out that they had put in. Okay. So, and how did you obtain these documents? Uh, you know, uh, sources who uh, I've been working on um, to help me understand, you know, all sides of the story. I think uh, as I've been reporting on this for more than a year now, um, for the vast majority of that time, uh, it's very difficult to find people um, uh, on all sides of the story who would talk to me and and tell me their you know side of of events. Um, you know, in the last in this last reporting period, a lot of that had changed, and I think that's why the story has changed. Um, I feel like. And why do you think that changed? Why do you think people were suddenly more open? Well, I think the, one of the biggest mistakes that that's been made in this this case is that there there was nothing coming from the, the tether or Bitfinex side. Uh, there was a vacuum there, and if you have you know if you allow that vacuum, other people are going to fill it. And I think it's been filled um, for a long time with uh, a lot of uh, concern, a lot of like, you know, a lot of good um, calls from people to try to hold them to account for, um, you know, delivering the audits that they always promised for being more transparent. Um, And so, but they never did. Um, And I think, you know, uh, after, after time, I guess, for whatever reason, I, I don't really know, um, but there there were people I found who were willing to, um, you know, cooperate with me um, for the first time. And just so we spell out for listeners also, what is the relationship between Bitfinex and Tether? They, um, so it goes, this goes back to when Tether was founded. Um, there were two groups uh, of people, one of whom was Brock Pierce, uh, Craig Sellers, and um, uh, Reef Collins. They had all been sort of talking um, in early 2014 about the need for uh, just a digital fiat, you know, something that wasn't volatile like Bitcoin. Um, they, everybody at that point was going through Mt. Gox. And as you remember, um, you know, there were periods where Bitcoin withdrawals were frozen at Mt. Gox, periods where dollar withdrawals were frozen. And a lot of people were just you know, they, they, they wanted an option for a digital token that, that couldn't be um, frozen. So th- they were having those sorts of discussions. And then uh, Phil Potter and Giancarlo DiVassini and JL uh, on the on the Bitfinex side had also been sort of kicking around this idea. Uh, they all knew each other because, you know, the crypto world was small at that point. Um, Brock Pierce had tried to, uh, invest in Bitfinex back then, um, through, uh, blockchain capital and his partners, but that didn't, that didn't go anywhere, but they were all in the mix and realized that they were working on the same idea. So in the summer of 2014, they, they combined efforts and, um, created Tether. Um, so they, they all had, split up the equity and they went about kind of writing the white paper and doing a lot of the technical work to get it ready. It launched in early 2015 uh, as when Bitfinex um, allowed you to either withdraw or deposit um, on their exchange with Tether. And then they, a lot of work that, that they had been doing um, specifically Reeve Collins was to, you know, 
get other exchanges to to come on board um, because they knew there wouldn't be any kind of network effect if it was just you know a sort of Bitfinex thing. So um, uh, I believe it was you know it's the one in Seattle. Is it Bitrex? I think was the second. Yeah, and okay. then and then uh, uh, more exchanges came on board in 2015. Um, it was still slow to get off the ground, and there was some infighting that was happening. Um, people didn't feel that it was taking off. And so by the end of 2015, uh, it was decided that uh, the Bitfinex folks would buy out um, Brock Pierce and um, Reeve Collins. Um, so they did. And um, Craig Sellers ended up staying on for a few years. Um, he was more He was the sort of technical guy. Um, from that group and he'd written the white paper. So from about the end of 2015, just until now, Tether has, has been a bit, has been owned by the Bitfinex executives and been run by the same, the, the same executives. So, uh, that, that was another thing. You know, all of this was playing out in the background. Um, they were never very transparent about the ownership. Uh, there was no information on any website, uh, you know, either the Bitfinex or Tether website about, who, who ran the company, where they were located. Um, so, you know, when, when people started looking into this, um, like me and, and other reporters and just general people who were, you know, very active in the crypto com- community, th- there was just nothing to go on. And uh, I think it was, th- there was a lawsuit that came out against Wells Fargo that sort of um, spelled out some of the, the, the relationships between Bitfinex and Tether. And then, the, the Panama Papers uh, also spelled out some some of the relationships. And uh, so, you know, throughout this whole history of this story, there's just it's, it's been red flag after red flag um, and, and not really any transparency on their part. So we're going to discuss the reasons for that secrecy in a moment. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Ready or not, the Financial Action Task Force anti-money laundering recommendations soon go into effect globally. If you handle cryptocurrencies, no matter where you do business, these new AML laws will apply to you. CypherTrace helps exchanges, ICOs, funds, brokerages, and regulators understand and manage crypto asset and compliance risks. Learn how to reduce your exposure and prepare now for tough new regulations. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Learn more at cyphertrace.com slash unconfirmed. I'm speaking with Matthew Lysing of Bloomberg. So why do you think that they were not more transparent throughout this whole process? I think, um, you know, part of it is stubbornness on their part. Uh, part of it is sort of the crypto ethos of, you know, screw you. I, why do we need to tell you anything? Um, I think the, there is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really both of these companies are run by a handful of people, um, you know, three, four, five people at the top making decisions. And uh, I think, you know, I've, and I've spoken to this with many people uh, during the course of my reporting and, you know, it sounds a little facile, but it, it, it really, it feels like one of the worst PR, you know, jobs in, in finance that I've, I've run across um, because it just, they, they really, didn't get out there and tell their story. Didn't, didn't, I don't know, didn't care, didn't want to, but for whatever reason they didn't, um, you know, kind of come out and give people information that um, would have calmed their, their fears. So it sounds like you really feel like the documents that you uncovered kind of fully resolve this question 
overhanging whether or not Tether is fully backed. Is that, it feels like that's the way you're talking. I don't, I, I wouldn't say that it fully resolves it. Um, I think this is the most evidence we've had. Um, and uh, it's, it's more than the Friedman report. It's more than the, um, the Louis Free Group report. And I think um, when you add in, you know, the, the money at Dell Tech that they announced um, as being, uh, you know, they, they came out publicly on November 1st and said, you know, we're now at Dell Tech Bank and there's $1.8 billion in, in our account. Um, and, and the other thing that I found compelling was um, in one of the statements I got, it documented money flows um, that you could line up with um, blockchain transactions. So at this point in July, um, Bitfinex was redeeming a lot of Tether. Uh, they were sending Tether back to Tether LTD. That's the issuer um, kind of parent company and getting their money back through Noble Bank. So on five or six different occasions in July, uh, we were able to match up uh, money movements within Noble um, from Tether to Bitfinex that kind of matched the mirror image on the blockchain of Bitfinex sending Tether back to Tether LTD. Um, so, you know, that, and that's, that's the way it was explained to me before I, so before I got the documents, people had told me how it worked and, and they had walked me through the process and I had spoken to several different people, um, on different sides of that to understand that this is, this is the way it worked. It's, it's sometimes people call it the walled garden where, you know, you have these internal accounts at Noble, uh, there's other banks like Silvergate and San Diego and a few others that, that use the same approach. So you don't have to use, you know, there, there's no wires um, between these these accounts. There's no correspondent bank to get in the way. So you do your blockchain, you know, you buy and sell Bitcoin on Bitfinex, for example, and then uh, at some point you settle up and the, the, the money, the, the fiat flows, um, you know, either to or from the Bitfinex account at Noble to that trader. And, and the, the, as that was explained to me, that it was also explained that this is the same thing that happens when, Tethers either created or redeemed, and at this point, um, after the uh, the Taiwanese banks dropped Tether, the the Bitfinex and Tether executives decided that the Bitfinex would be the only um, customer for Tether. So uh, previously, you know, in- individuals and other folks could go directly to Tether and buy it, and they made the decision: okay, from now on, we're only going to sell to Bitfinex. So everybody has to go to Bitfinex and, and get their Tether there, or an exchange like Kraken will get their tether on Bitfinex and, and have it, you know, and then customers can use it on Kraken or, or on any of the other tether exchanges. Did you ask the executives why they didn't, why they weren't more transparent earlier? Because it just feels like it would have, I mean, if, if the documents really um, are accurate, then it feels like they could have resolved all these questions overhanging each other a while ago. I did. Yeah, I did. And, um, you know, it's difficult when I'm taught um, when my sources are protected and, and they're anonymous. Uh, I can't really get into a lot of detail about that, but, you know, just, I can say, I think there were different opinions about that, um, among different people who were behind the scenes and. But what, what would be the argument against? I don't understand. Yeah, that's still an open question. I don't know. All I know is that, um, from the record, you know, they, they weren't, open and transparent and they, they could have, I think, done a lot more to 
answer people's concerns. And, and it, you know, I, then I wouldn't have to be doing this with sort of piecemeal bank statements. But, you know, as I said, <laughs> it, it's, it, this is the most we've ever seen about this um, sort of central question because, you know, let's not forget Tether became an integral part of this ecosystem. And without Tether, you know, we would not have seen the, the run up to $20,000 last year in Bitcoin. And you would not have seen the ease of um, crypto trading on exchanges that were outside of the United States because for a lot of them, it's, it's really hard for them to get fiat um, bank accounts. So Tether kind of took that on and became the bank of crypto. And so that's really important to the ecosystem and, and the way that, that everything operates. And then it's also that makes it a very important question about whether this is legitimate because you know, it, it wasn't just reporters. There, there was some academic research that was done that questioned whether, you know, Tether could have been printed uh, out of thin air with no dollars in a bank account and then use, you know, then those Tethers can be used to buy Bitcoin um, to either prop up the price or kind of put in a, a price floor. So, you know, th- those are the, the, the questions that, that have been out there and, and nagging and, and what I've been trying to sort of answer as much as possible. Okay. So we're, we're kind of, I'm going to just run over time because there are a few other things I wanted to ask about. So the CFTC is investigating whether or not Tether is fully backed by dollar reserves. So do you, do you feel like the findings in your article provide an answer to what the CFTC is investigating? And do you know the status of that investigation? Sure. Um, yeah, as I said in the story, um, what I was told is that when the CFTC sent those subpoenas, um, at that point, you know, Tether had the Noble Bank account and they um, had this sort of audit trail where Noble required um, them to give a justification anytime money moved from one account to another. So what they would do is they'd say, okay, well, here's the blockchain transaction. Um, you know, this is part of the paperwork that they would have to file before the money would be approved. So they, they would say, okay, well, see here on, on the Omni blockchain, they would say, you know, look at this transaction. Here's 50 million um, Tether going from that Tether to Bitfinex. So we need to move $50 million between the internal accounts. And um, th- that provided a way for um, the Tether, Bitfinex, and Noble to sort of say, look, here it all is. You know, um, we can trace the money movements. I was told that CFTC didn't really kind of buy that originally they, they, they sort of said, Oh, that's too easy and spent about six months, um, kind of digging in more, uh, in a more detailed way, in a more granular way to kind of look at the, those records and the money movements. Uh, as for the, the status of the, the, the investigation, we, we couldn't determine, um, uh, where that is. Uh, I think completely aside from that, you, you have to ask yourself if, the subpoenas were sent December 6th, 2017. And here we are a year later, December, 2018, none of the money has been frozen. There's been no action. So when the government is subpoenaing you and and they're in your books and they're in your auditor's books and they're in your correspondent bank's books, um, you know, they'll figure it out pretty quickly if there's something fishy. So just from that sort of outsider's view, you have to wonder you know, why it wasn't shut down. 
And the other thing I want to ask about what you alluded to was that the Department of Justice is investigating whether or not Tether has been used to manipulate Bitcoin's price. What is your take on that concern? Right. Um, yeah, two of my colleagues um, broke that story last month in November. Um, it, it's So the DOJ for months now, for a lot of 2017, I think, has had a criminal investigation into price manipulation in crypto in general. So across, you know, all the major exchanges that you could name. Um, and they were able to uh, hone in on that a little bit and say that uh, Justice Department investigators were, were now looking more specifically at whether Tether um, was used to manipulate prices. Um, the, that's the latest we know on that. Um, the questions such as, are, are they talking about Tether executives, like people behind the scenes, or are they talking about Tether being used on the secondary market by anyone who can go and buy it, you know, on any exchange? Um, you know, that's that's an important question. And unfortunately, we don't know the answer to that at this point. And and you don't feel like your article brings anything to bear on, on that question? I mean, I could speculate, but I, you know, I'd rather not because we just don't know. Um, you know, I think there is one scenario where, you know, if if the Justice Department is looking at the question of whether the money was actually not there and that Tether was being created um, without the dollars to back it and then used to buy um, Bitcoin, that, you know, th- th- that would follow some of the academic research that I mentioned and I think some of the follow on some of the CFTC concerns. But in fact, if the bank accounts were solid for that period of time, which, you know, I've only seen four months worth of statements, so I can't vouch for everything. But if if the concerns that the money um, is there have been allayed, then you would think that, that that wouldn't necessarily be an avenue that investigators are, are looking at. But that's not something that we've reported, and it's something that we're trying to, to get answers to. And then the last thing that I wonder about is, you know, just going along with what you were saying earlier about how this might be just the worst PR that you've ever seen from a financial company. Why why do you think Tether and Bitfinex have had such troubles maintaining banking relationships? Because I feel like that's another red flag. I Yeah. Um, I asked a lot of people about that as I was doing this reporting. And what, what I, I was told almost unanimously was that, you know, correspondent banking system is run by a handful of banks and they, you know, they're very risk averse. Um, it's, it's an expensive business to run from a compliance point of view because, you, you know, you're basically, um, you, you know, you're, when you're providing services to, to money transfer businesses, you, you need to be concerned not just about your customer like Tether or Bitfinex, but the, the customers they have. And that, that can be, time-consuming and and intense to um, do the compliance that you have to to make sure that there's no money laundering and and that, um, you know, uh, and, and other things like, you know, terrorist financing and all, all those sorts of things that, that are um, FinCEN sort of, uh, that FinCEN gets involved with. So a lot of times it's just not, like, I think correspondent banks don't want the hassle uh, they don't think it's worth it um, when, you know, uh, it's fair to say that I think Bitcoin has never had a good reputation um, for, for this kind of activity. And, you know, if, if they want to 
if you can't move dollars around, then, then it makes it very hard to do business. Um, you know, a good parallel there is, I think, the marijuana industry and, and the troubles that they've had with getting banking as well. Um, so mm-hmm. that that's why, like, I think Silvergate, like I mentioned, they're down in San Diego. I think they were the first to sort of come up with this, you know, internal accounts um, system. And that's what Noble did. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's what Deltec is doing as well. So, um, you know, while there is a lot of fraud and a lot of other stuff, uh, you know, it, it, for the legitimate part of this industry, um, it's, it's still been a challenge. And really what I'm talking about is offshore, you know, the, the U.S. exchanges, um, the, the major ones at least, have, haven't had as much trouble having banking. But um, the, the, you know, that's, that's if you look at the, the list of the major exchanges out there, you know, very few of them are in the U.S. So um, it's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just been, you know, it's a, it's a lack of trust on the banking side. It's, it's a headache for them. And I think they don't want the reputational risk of getting caught up, um, you know, as providing services to, to some of these companies. Hmm. Well, this whole thing has been super interesting. I don't, I don't know if it fully resolves everything, but yeah, what you um, what you showed in your article is another piece of the puzzle. So thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Gallipoli, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Liss. Thanks for listening.